From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. The people who support him, they don't even have the excuse that he concealed his real self from them. He made it clear who and what he was. And if you supported Trump, you did it knowing all of those things. And that, that was a tough thing for those who did not support Donald Trump to face about so many of their fellow countrymen and women. That's David Frum. He's a staff writer at The Atlantic. Frum has been a prominent voice in conservative politics for years. He once served as a speechwriter to President George W. Bush. Frum is the author of 10 books, most of which explore the evolution of the American conservative movement. His latest, called Trumpocalypse, Restoring American Democracy, documents the evolution of the Republican Party during the Trump years. Frum returns to the show to discuss the war in Ukraine, the power of congressional internet celebrities like Marjorie Taylor Greene, and whether Trump can make a political comeback. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Support for this podcast comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio and your money every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise is an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab. The show unpacks the stories making news in Washington and how they may affect your finances and investments. Listen today at schwab.com slash Washington Wise. That's schwab.com slash Washington Wise. Before I get to your questions, I want to mention something. The video of our full Stay Tuned live show that took place last week, featuring my conversation with Ben Stiller, Gary Kasparov, and Alexander Vindman, is now available at cafe.com for members of Cafe Insider. Folks who want to try the membership for just $1 for the first month can do so at cafe.com slash insider. Now let's get to your questions. This question comes from our old friend, Walter Schaub, who once upon a time was the director of the Office of Government Ethics. Actually, it's less of a question than a request. Walter writes, Preet, Congress is holding a hearing on a congressional stock ban this Thursday. It would be great if you mentioned that for folks. It's ridiculous. This is even a debate. Now, Walter and I don't agree on everything, but on this, we are absolutely on the same page. This is an issue that I've written about, I've spoken about, and I've tweeted about on a number of occasions. I find it to be remarkable that there is no prohibition on individual members of Congress being able to hold and trade, buy and sell individual stocks, even though members of Congress, both in the House and the Senate, have broad ability to affect markets and learn inside information. I think it diminishes trust in the kinds of things that they vote on and the kinds of hearings that they have and the kinds of legislation that they propose and the kinds of influence that lobbying forces have if they're allowed to trade in individual stocks. As I've mentioned many times before, such bans are normal and commonplace among financial analysts, financial reporters, law firms, trading firms. In fact, as I've mentioned also, I haven't traded in any individual stock in many, many years because even as a junior staffer in the United States Senate on the Judiciary Committee, I felt kind of uncomfortable owning and trading individual stocks given the portfolio of work that I had and the member that I worked for had. So I, along with a bipartisan majority of Americans, 
believe that some sort of stock ban for members of Congress is in order, and I think this hearing is long overdue. And I'm happy that Representative Lofgren is holding this hearing Thursday, April 7th. As Representative Lofgren said in a statement, quote, the committee will hold a public hearing to examine proposed stock trading reforms for Congress with a panel of stakeholders and experts to be announced in the coming weeks, end quote. Now, there happen to be a number of proposals on the table. They vary in popularity and a little bit in substance. One that I've written about before is proposed by Senators John Ossoff and Mark Kelly. It's called the Banned Congressional Stock Trading Act, and it would require all members of Congress, their spouses, and dependent children to place their stock portfolios in a blind trust. There's another competing proposal from Senators Elizabeth Warren and Steve Daines, who's a Republican. They've introduced the Bipartisan Ban on Congressional Stock Ownership Act, which is a little bit more stringent than even the Ossoff-Kelly bill. The Warren-Daines bill would ban lawmakers and their spouses from owning or trading individual stocks. They would only be allowed to own stocks through broad exchange-traded funds or mutual funds. And so whereas on the one hand, the Ossoff-Kelly bill would require lawmakers and their spouses to give up control of any stocks by putting them in a blind trust, the Warren-Daines bill would make lawmakers sell off their stocks altogether. Importantly, in my mind, both bills reach the issue of spousal ownership of stock. Now, it's an open question as to whether any of these bills will garner enough broad-based bipartisan support to get passed in the Senate and the House, but I hope they will. This question comes in a tweet from Marcus, who asks, is there enough time to thoroughly investigate and prosecute all the participants in January 6th, right up to the top before the next presidential election? Hashtag AskPreet. Now, Marcus, you raise a very, very important issue that permeates all prosecutions and investigations, but the kind of prosecution investigation you're talking about, it's even a bigger issue. And that is the question of the clock. Now, ordinarily, in garden variety investigations and prosecutions, there's always some focus on the clock. Often, that's true because of the statute of limitations. There's only a prescribed period of time in which you can hold someone accountable for an act that violates a statute. The ticking clock is also relevant if there's ongoing harm that's happening, or there's someone who's a fugitive and you want to bring to justice and incapacitate before they do injustice and harm to other folks. The clock is also an important consideration because as time passes, witnesses' memories fade, documents get lost, people get coached. All sorts of problematic things happen as the clock ticks. But in certain kinds of politically fraught investigations and attempts to hold folks accountable, the clock is of a slightly different nature. So one of the main issues relating to the clock has been the January 6th committee and whether or not it can get its work done, not by 2024 and the next presidential election, but by the end of 2022 and the midterm elections. That's why I think the committee has strategically decided to do certain things and not do certain things. For example, the committee has reportedly decided that it will not seek to issue subpoenas to fellow members of Congress, even if they were involved in the big lie, and even if they were involved in some way in the activities of January 6th. That's in part, in my view, because it's already April, and those subpoenas will be fought tooth and nail, and it might be a distraction. And at the end of the day, if the Republicans take over the House, that investigation will be brought to a close. So they're focusing their energy and their time on the things that they can get done before the midterm election. Now, you ask about investigating and prosecuting people before the presidential election of 2024. That's still two and a half years away. There's been some debate and question about what DOJ is doing, how much effort they're bringing to bear on the immediate orbit around Donald Trump and upon Donald Trump himself. My view is if they act with alacrity and focus, 
and they use all the resources that they have brought to bear so far, that if there's a case to be made against someone in connection with January 6th, that's doable. Certainly the charges can be brought. Depends on how long a particular judge will decide a trial will take and when the trial can be set. But my view is, if there's going to be a case and if there's going to be a trial against anybody up to and including the former president, that can be accomplished by the time the next president, whether it's Joe Biden or someone else, takes office. And I understand the reason for concern. If Donald Trump or another Republican takes office in 2025 and the Justice Department's investigation is not complete, could it be derailed? We saw that kind of thing happen with respect to the Mueller investigation and former Attorney General Bill Barr interfered with, intervened in, cases relating to cronies of the president. Could that happen again? I suppose so. So it's a realistic concern that you raise, but I have optimism that there's enough time to get it done. Stay tuned. There's more coming up after this. Support for this show comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise, an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab, tracks the stories making news right now and breaks them down for the average investor. Host Mike Townsend, Charles Schwab's Managing Director for Legislative and Regulatory Affairs, takes a nonpartisan look at the stories that matter most to investors. He explores topics like policy initiatives for retirement savings, taxes, and trade, inflation fears, the Federal Reserve, and how regulatory developments can affect companies, sectors, and even the entire market. In every episode, Mike and his guests offer their perspectives on how policy changes could affect what you do with your portfolio. Download the latest episode and follow at schwab.com slash Washington Wise or wherever you listen. As the U.S. responds to the war in Ukraine, one thing is almost certain. The response would look a lot different if the former president were still in office. David Frum, a staff writer at The Atlantic, joins me this week to discuss the impact of Russia's invasion on U.S. politics and how this political moment reflects where our country is headed. David Frum, welcome back to the show. Such a pleasure to return. Good to, good to talk to you. It's been a little over a year. You know, just before we started taping, you and I were discussing what we might discuss on the show. And obviously it continues to be major news in this country and around the world, what's going on in Ukraine, which I think we should talk about a little bit. But then you said... We should talk about that, but we should also return to these shores. Why did you say that? We, the drama in Ukraine, the, the, the horror, the, the sacrifice is so compelling um, that we're, our attention is drawn. And there's a risk of, especially for those of us who spend, draw most of our knowledge from domestic politics, to, to um, play amateur expert in a way that can easily overstep. The, bond, the bonds of the bounds of our expertise. So, um, I, I I want to focus on on the things that I, I know the most about and that we together know the most about. And I also think it's important that people understand that what is happening in Ukraine is the most grim and bloody part, but of a, a global struggle, um, and that there is an American center to it too. And obviously, the stakes, obviously, the, the contest here has not been as as horrifying as as it is over there. But in some way. The contest here will determine the outcome over there. I mean, if if 
if Donald Trump had somehow managed to retain power after the election of, of 2020, this war in Ukraine would look very different. Are you surprised at how much Americans are paying attention to what happens in Ukraine? I mean, I think it's a common understanding among folks here that, that Americans don't care so much what goes on beyond our shores. Why is this different? I'm not so sure that Americans really do. I mean, I think um, people who listen to podcasts do. I think you and I do. And I, I think the, the policy world is focused on it. But one of the real hazards ahead um, is that we may be reminded very bluntly in November of 2022 that Americans care about the price of gas. Uh, they care about the price of uh, groceries, things that are being um, – prices that are being inflated by uh, uh, the war in U- Ukraine. And that they – pay attention. They, I mean, they obviously, the Americans hate bullies. Uh, Americans stand up for the underdog. Um, Americans like, um, admire courage um, and hate dictators, but they also care a lot about their own lives and, uh, their, and the prices they face and the, the economic struggles they go through. And it will be a big mistake if people think that um, Ukraine is going to be a ballot issue in 2022. So that's interesting. You, you think it has no bearing on the fortunes of the Democrats or the Republicans? I didn't say no bearing. Um, I think it has some, I think it's political consequence over here is it it does alter a little bit the internal calculus inside the parties. Um, and it, um, primary struggles are much more a game for activists than general elections. And in those primaries, I think it's going to matter. I mean, I think um, there, there are Republicans who've bet very heavily on Putin being kind of um, a symbol and not a reality, uh, they, they, and though that they were important inside the Republican par- Party, I think um, they're going to discover that that's an unpopular position, and that if uh, those Republicans who um, overinvested uh, in Orban in Orban and Putin because they thought of them as jokers, as symbols, as culture war counters, uh, just as ways scoring points in domestic political debates without really thinking that these these were real people with real agendas that were deeply sinister and violent. Um, so I think we're going to see some some consequences in places like the Ohio Senate Republican contest, where um, I, I think you're going to find much more traditional Republican porn policy types getting the upper hand. You're seeing that in in um, in Congress, where uh, Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy, and they can't quite endorse what the president is doing, but they're endorsing it without saying they're endorsing it. Uh, I think in the Democratic Party, too, I think there's been, um, less dramatically, but there's there's been a tilt. And the um, there's a kind of left isolationism that sometimes gains strength in the Democratic world. I think it has less strength today. But when the two big parties meet for the voters who are less committed to paying all their attention to politics, um, gas prices, inflation, um, feelings of uh, cr- crime, those are going to be the issues in 22. You know, we talk about what effect the war in Ukraine will have on domestic politics, how Americans view the Democrats and Joe Biden or the Republicans and Donald Trump. You know, we had a big issue some months ago that we talked about on this podcast and, and everywhere in the country, and that was the withdrawal of troops from Afghanistan. And it seemed like a monumental issue then, even a political issue domestically. It seems to have faded from memory. Do you think that the fact that that doesn't seem to have any bearing on the midterms means something for whether or not Ukraine matters? I think um, there's a double conversation that tends to go on when, when, when in forums like this and, and, and similar, um, we talk about the affairs of the world. And uh, something will happen that seems like a really important thing. And, um, and the, there'll be a rejoinder, well, the median voter in the median district doesn't care about this issue. And that's considered a sufficient answer. I, I think it's pretty evident that, especially in um, 
midterm elections that uh, foreign policy issues don't affect the median voter. But that doesn't mean they're not important. And and so when you get when you when you're in a discussion and people say, well, the the voter in Paducah doesn't care about it. So well, I I don't happen to be in Paducah. I don't happen to be that voter. I care. And I think it's important. And I think it's going to be important to the United States. And um, and people want the, I care about the consequences. I mean, this, this war is driving food prices all over the planet. This war is driving fuel prices all over the planet. People care about the effects. And I think one of the things that, that uh, we, we need to give some respect for politicians for is voters hire politicians to deliver results. And you know, we've all had the experience where the car is making a funny noise. You you drive it to the shop, um, and what you want is the car to come back without the funny noise. And you don't want a half an hour story about what the funny noise was and um, the ver- and the various things that the mechanic tried to do to correct the funny noise. You want drive the car in, fix the noise, reasonable bill. Thank you very much. Um, I have my own job to do. So uh, we look to political leaders to address these concerns. Are most most of us do. And then there are a few of us who, um, for whom this is um, a, a subject of attention in the way that other things are subjects for attention to other people. And so, and so we care and we focus. And, and our, the point of these discussions is to help the politicians understand what to do, because politicians aren't policy experts. Politicians are specialists in a very important arts. Politicians are specialists in the art of gaining public consent for public measures. Um, and they then, they, they understand psychology, they understand people, um, they don't understand every conceivable issue that could arise, and so they, they need the guidance from people who do care about these specific issues. But is it also true, relatedly, people might not be expert in the Donbass region or on the history of Ukraine and, you know, its lineage as an independent country and all sorts of other specific issues. But do the American people care that their president looks strong and does not look weak? Because that does seem to be a lot of the discussion between the folks on Trump's side and the folks on Biden's side. Does that matter to the American people in a general way? Um, I, I think one of the arguments for Donald Trump was always that um, he was really good at posing. Um, he did things with his chin. He did things with his hands. He did things with his chest. But of course, Donald Trump was was not a strong president. He was vain. He was needy. He was impulsive. Um, he was lazy. He was phys- he was physically weak. Um, he couldn't walk up a flight of stairs. He couldn't walk down a ramp. Um, he you know did he. Um, he was self-indulgent. He was greedy with food. Um, he was. He got a hole strong. in one. He got a hole in one recently. I don't know if you he saw was not. Yeah, congratulations with <laughs> he, he, he legendarily cheats at golf, um, and uh, uh, so he. But he he was he was a poser. And I think one of the things that he admired so much at Vladimir Putin was that Vladimir Putin was a, who was also you know, um, uh, was also a poser and also had, he had a much more controlled media, of course. So they, they, they ramified it. And then Putin's American admirers also then amplified this image. Um, I, I think for presidents, it's important to deliver results, but sometimes presidents have to do very tough things. I mean, we, we talked about Afghanistan. Um, when, when, when president Biden, um, took the hard decision that he did, on Afghanistan, um, and and you can there are a lot of micro criticisms about the exact timing, the exact way it was done, but it's really important to uh, that people understand if there were thousands or more or more than ten thousand Americans in Afghanistan right now, it would be very hard for the president of the United States to take a strong line on Russia, because the way 
the United States sustained that commitment in Afghanistan. American troops, it's a very sophisticated army. There's fuel, there's fuel, uh, uh, there's fuel, there's ammunition, there's tons of stuff that have to get into landlocked Afghanistan. And there are really only two main routes. One is by truck through Pakistan and the other is by rail through Russia. And so long as the United States had such an enormous presence in Afghanistan, it was dependent either on Pakistan or on Russia or on both. And when people wonder, you know, uh, you know, there's a lot, my, the president I wrote for, George W. Bush, I mean, there's a lot of derision of him for the way he flattered uh, Putin um, when back in um, the immediate aftermath of 9-11. But the reason he did that was because Putin, Putin's um, cooperation was essential to getting supplies into Afghanistan. And the same thing with uh, when, when Barack Obama went, went easy on Putin over a bunch of other quarrels uh, in Syria and, 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 and in Ukraine in 2014. He had American, in effect, hostages in Afghanistan who depended either on Pakistan or on Russia for road or for rail to bring supplies. And by taking that tough decision in the way that he did, and again, there, you, there are micro-criticisms, but, but President Biden regained a freedom of action for the United States and the world that it didn't have before. What do you make of the things that Joe Biden says that people around him either walk back or think they need to walk back because they're not strictly by the book diplomacy? So for example, he said a few weeks ago that Vladimir Putin was a war criminal. And he said more recently, and this sparked a lot of controversy. For God's sake, this man cannot remain power. And then there was a whole debate about whether or not he was advocating for regime change, and then it was walked back, depending on who you ask. They say, you know, it, it was weak of the people around him, the career diplomats, to walk that back. What do you think is going on there? I, I think there are three, three layers of things, and I'm, I'm probably going to end up by the end of these three layers offending every <laughs> listener to your podcast in one way or another. Just don't offend me, sir. Okay. So, uh, so the base layer has all, has, is that Joe Biden has never been a verbally disciplined person. Um, he just he he says what he says things. Um, he, he speaks, and when he was younger, especially, would speak at great length. Um, he would speak without always a lot of thought, um, and that has historically been a problem for him, and it got him into a lot of problems problems in the earlier part of his career. There is also another layer, which is that um, Biden is a strategic blurter. Um, that he will say that he takes advantage of his reputation at his earned reputation as someone who talks without thinking to say things that um, move the discussion, most famously when he got out in front of President Obama on gay marriage. And that was obviously, that was not obviously, that I believe was deeply considered. And what his his plan was, if uh, I'm going to say this thing, and either I'm going to drive the administration to follow my agenda but if the president gets really mad at me, I could say, well, you know, I just, I'm always shooting my mouth off. That's you know? just me. That's, <laughs> That's just, just me. <laughs> it's just, just me. So, so he did a strategic blurt that actually changed the policy of the administration, changed the country. Um, and then the, the, the third layer is, and again, I want to say this not in an exaggerated way because there's a lot of unfair criticism of him, but um, he is the oldest president ever and by a lot. And he is perceptibly losing some of his, uh, of his energy and, uh, and some of his, some of his, um, rigor. Uh, and so I think those things are going on. So some, I think the, my God, Putin has to go or whatever he said exactly. Um, you know, I think a lot of people want to believe it was a strategic blurt. Um, it was, it was such an, um, it, it was such a step 
that I, I don't think it was strategic. I think it, that was an expression of his feeling. I think that was just the, the shield between his inner self and his outer self being too thin because of, of the stress of age and office. Um, you know, depending on how this war goes, uh, the Western democracies can have bigger or larger, bigger or smaller aims for the world afterward. Um, but it's really too early to begin talking about what those bigger and smaller aims might be. You know, in hearing you talk and in thinking about the things that Biden says and whether they're strategic blurts. I think we have a title for the episode, by the way, strategic blurter, <laughs> which is hard to say. You know, Donald Trump said a lot of things that were either stupid or offensive or accidental uh, and contrary to orthodoxy of Republicans and, and general diplomacy also. And and we all on the sidelines criticized it and got into debates about it. But but it seems to me that a lot of his base loved that about him. You know, if, if you... If you see these interviews of people at his rallies, they will still say that they love and adore Donald Trump in part because he, he called it as he saw it and he said what he thought, notwithstanding the niceties of, you know, constrained politics or constrained foreign relations and diplomacy. Does Joe Biden get the same kind of benefit as being authentic, whether these, these blurts are strategic or not? Um, look, there are different kinds of parties. Uh, they're different kinds of um, voters, and also, um, and they're different kinds of politicians. I mean, Donald Trump was a narrow cast politician. He had an intense base of support, and he leveraged that into control of the Republican Party. Um, but he was never a broadly popular president. There was not a single day after he took um, the oath of office when he had an approval rating of even fifty percent in any reputable, leaving aside the Rasmussen polls and any reputable poll. Um, and if you're a Republican, given the Republican map, that's fine. You can you can you can lever you can lever um, the Republican Party is more homogenous within itself than the Democratic Party is, so it's easier for one faction to gain control of the whole party. And then the Republican Party has a more favorable electoral map, so it can it, it can do more with a minority of the vote than than, than Democrats can. Uh, Biden is a different kind of per president running a different kind of party, but Donald Trump's. Uh, blurts, uh, they weren't strategic. I think we're often self-revealing. I mean, one of the things Donald Trump had, tr because he was such an, a profoundly amoral and indecent person, he had trouble remembering um, to do the decencies and the morality and conventional morality. Um, it was just such a, a foreign language to him. And so he would often reveal um, what he was up to in ways that were, I think, non-strategic. I think that, that did him harm. I mean, he would confess to things that everyone suspected he had in mind. Uh, and because he did, he could not remember that he he, uh, he was supposed to cover it up. Uh, and one of Donald Trump's few uh, in the 2016 um, debates, Hillary Clinton was asked to say something nice about Donald Trump, and uh, and she answered something about his family, which you know wasn't even very convincing because actually he's a terrible father. <laughs> on top of everything else. There's nothing good. He's a terrible family man. But the one compliment you can, the one nice thing you can say about him or the one positive thing you can say to him is that actually, uh, to a remarkable extent, Donald Trump was not a hypocrite. He did not pretend to be a good person. He didn't pretend to um, care about people. He, he showed himself for who and what he was. And I think one of the reasons that so many of us found ourselves um, so lost and unhappy during the Trump years was that, that you could say it's the people who support him, they don't even have the excuse that he concealed his real self from them. Um, he made it clear 
who and what he was. And if you supported Trump, you did it knowing all of those things. And that, that was a tough thing for those who did not support Donald Trump to face about so many of their fellow countrymen and women. You know, that's because not a lot of, not everyone cares about those issues. They care about results and, and or they, you know, hate the liberal elite that they believe run everything in America. And so they don't care about his personal morality. And it also gave him something of a shield, right? Which I guess is the corollary of what you're saying, that when he did further bad things or showed himself to be indecent or offensive, it was not at odds with the person they perceived him to be. It's interesting that you say he, you know, he's not a hypocrite because in, in many ways, Donald Trump on particular policy issues and on particular loyalties was, was a, an intense hypocrite, whether you're talking about issues of choice or how he felt about certain people, he would say one thing one day and have a different feeling on another day. But what you're saying is sort of on a, on a basic and fundamental level, he didn't run as a Boy Scout and reveled a little bit in being the opposite of that. Fair? Well, he, look, he was, he was impulsive. So you'd have random walks. Um, look, on, on, you, say we, um, you said you mentioned choice. Uh, I mean, Do- Donald Trump could be two-faced. Um, but it, um, but on, on many of those issues, I think he communicated very clearly. He didn't care. Um, you know, he didn't care about abortion. And to the extent that he had an opinion about abortion, um, he would be, you know, for it, especially in his immediate circle. Um, and then, uh, the people who had a right to complain that he was being hypocritical were the pro-life people who, uh, would say, you know, but, but he did deliver for them, but he, again, it was a pretty transparent transaction. Um, which is Donald Trump doesn't care about the abortion issue at all, but but he delivered the result because he respected the power within the Republican Party of the pro-life coalition. So he gave them what they wanted, even though he obviously didn't care and obviously right. hated children. <laughs> but it, but it's, sort of, it's sort of strange. Maybe different words need to be used, not hypocrite or two-faced or um, contradictory, because look at religion. You know, he, he presented himself as someone who was a friend of the evangelicals, and, you know, he, he couldn't name a quote in the Bible, but he thought it was, you know, maybe second to his own book, The Art of the Deal, the best book. But I think maybe what you're also saying is, at base, everyone knew he didn't really care much about religion and didn't really care much about the Bible and didn't really care much about church. And they forgave him for that. Well, um, they made a transaction. And the, the transaction actually shows one of the reasons, I mean, this is, I think, the, the fundamental um, one of the fundamental changes in the country that Donald Trump rode. And one of the reasons why what happened on January 6th is so ominous for the future. Uh, when I became involved with politics um, a long time ago, social conservatives believed they represented the majority of Americans um, and that there were sinister elites that, that defeated the moral majority, the moral majority, that, 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 that name, which was Jerry Falwell's first group back in the 1970s, that, that was also an assertion about how they thought the country was. And one of the things that the moral majority, by the way, was a breakthrough movement, is um, it, it, was a, it tried to be a fusion of all forms. Of, it, it, it was obviously an evangelical movement, but it, try, it tried to be more ecumenical, to work with Catholics, uh, to work with um, you know, uh, other Jews even, um, uh, you know, other religious groups for a, more, a moral majority of people of faith you know, not just sectarian evangelical Protestants, but all of them, but together represented the good sense of the country um, or the moral sense of the country. So they promised. And, and through the early part of the 
20, uh, 21st century, I think that feeling was still there. That's why um, when um, gay marriage became uh, such an issue to the fore, that the, the method that was chosen by people on the other, on the other side was the referendum. Um, well, let's let's take this out of the hands of the courts and let's let the plain people vote on it in an, in a fair, free and fair contest, and let's see where the country is. And that was that happened a lot between in the early part of the between you know two thousand and two and two thousand and eight. This the story of the Trump years has been that not only the leaders, but I think many people inside the social conservative movement have despaired of that. They understand now that, that that's not where the country is, um, and that they cannot get what they want with democratic methods. Hence the fascination with Viktor Orban, hence the admiration for Vladimir Putin, um, hence the willingness to tolerate actions like that of January 6th. That, 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 and this is, I think, the real moment of danger that the country faces, is that you have a cons- um, social conservative and a culturally reactionary movement that is powerful enough to be looking for ways to impose its will on everybody. Not, it's not just looking for tolerance, it wants dominance. But it also understands that it is not so powerful anymore, that it can hope to impose its will by free and fair elections. So they they have to look to other techniques like January 6th. We'll be right back with more of my conversation with David Frum after this. You know, I I keep thinking about what the legacy of Trump and Trumpism is, and then we'll also talk about whether or not it's on the rise or, or it's waning. But, but to me, you can make the argument that it's about the sort of um, centrality of untruth and, and making it so ordinary and everyday and recruiting so many other people, not just Marjorie Taylor Greene and, and Lauren Boebert, but many other people who see fit just to blatantly lie, whether it's about the election of 2020, most famously, or even other things, such that th- there are people who are willfully blind to the truth, I'll give you one example that I saw a poll about. Unemployment is, I think, at 3.6%, one of the lowest rates of unemployment in modern times. And a, and a poll of Republicans showed that a majority of Republicans have the belief that unemployment is up under Biden, as opposed to have gone down. And that's demonstrably false. You can Google it very easily. Um, you can even use a lesser search engine <laughs> like Bing, and you'd find the same result. <laughs> Isn't that a problem for fair politics going forward? I, I, I wonder, I, I, it's interesting to describe that as an untruth because um, that's, that, I don't think people are, when they say it's, it's um, unemployment is high when in fact it's low, I don't think they're lying exactly. No, I mean, in, right. In a way. Uh, it's they, their they perception, just, but their perception is, people's perceptions on, on certain documentable things yes. can be wrong. Yes, but it, isn't that part of all, all of our? Um, I think there's something about this in, in human nature. I mean, the chronic belief, for example, in every way that you can measure, things are getting better and better, and yet as we get older, things are getting. We we will are prone to say that things are getting worse and worse because. But that's sort of a general perception, and it varies with age. I'll give you another example, and these things get called out, but I don't think it matters. At, at a rally that Donald Trump was at recently. There's a representative, I don't remember the person's name, and, and even if I did, I probably wouldn't mention the name of the person, who just flatly said it was Donald Trump who found and got rid of Osama bin Laden. Yeah. And the crowd cheered. While President Trump was in office, we didn't have a war, and I think he made three peace treaties. Caught Osama, Osama bin Laden and Soleimani, 
al-Baghdadi. And this president is weak. That's just wrong. Right. <laughs> you could bing well, that I, also. And, and I, I feel, but and maybe that's always been so, but it feels to me, and my perception could be wrong, certainly. It feels to me that politicians, people who are actually elected to office, can just say whatever the hell they want now, and it doesn't matter. I, I think that in fairness to that person, I think they had mixed up Osama bin Laden with the head of ISIS who was killed uh, during the Trump presidency. Um, and so uh, people, mis- you know, I, the, uh, here's an example that I think is actually, um, because it happened in writing, not so president, ex-president Trump gave a statement just this past week in which he said that the, um, that he filled the strategic petroleum reserve that had been left and em- that he had inherited empty. He had done it magically. He said, now that's one that's in writing. That's premeditated. And that's something that you can look up on the, uh, information page of 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 the Department of Energy, and you can see that that's not true. <laughs> it's just not true. Um, and I, I, you know, I tw- tweeted the little chart showing the levels in um, in the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, and basically it was it was built up. Basically, it's built up a lot when prices are low, um, and then depleted when prices are high. And that President Trump, then President Trump, drew down in the last year and a half to get gasoline prices down in time for the election of 2020, that he actually left the um, the reserve lower than he inherited it from President Obama. Um, so, that, I mean, that's sort of, that's more a, de- a deliberate lie. But, um, yeah, we, I mean, we do live in, in, ide- in an ideologized and partisanized country. And, and that may be inescapable. You know, one of the and this may be this may be just something we're all going to have to find a way to adjust. You know, in in the 19th century, if you wanted somebody's vote, you delivered them an immediate personal material benefit: a turkey, a sack of coal, um, and the boss would get your vote. And then in the 20th century, Americans became better educated and more affluent. And if you wanted their vote, you had to deliver them not an immediate personal benefit, but some kind of larger collective benefit: a new bridge, a new high school, um, a, a factory in the district, and that's how you got their vote. Well, the country may be now educated and affluent enough that we turn to politics for self-actualization. And after all, why are people listening to the, this podcast? It doesn't confer a direct material benefit on them. Um, you know, we're not telling them about betting tips or stock tips or health tips. We're, we're discussing affairs of state, and people people find it meaningful and want to participate. Well, that's true also the people who disagree with you. And and so as people look to politics more and more as a source of meaning because they don't need a sack of coal and they don't even really exactly need the bridge. They, there are a lot of bridges already. Um, that they turn to politics for validation, ratification. Um, we're climbing, to use a fancy, we're climbing up Maslow's hierarchy of, of needs to the, the, the highest of them all. And we always thought that as we became as we got up that hierarchy, that we would find our politics more rational, and we maybe they're discovering they're more irrational because they're about things that it's harder to compromise on. I mean, that you can always say, "All right, this year you get the high school, and you know, next cycle we get the high school in our district." But if you say, um, "What I want from politics is to say that I, you know my fundamental way of seeing the world is right, and other people's is wrong," that's a harder thing to compromise upon. What you said just now makes me think of. You know, sort of a thesis that Tom Nichols and others suggest, and I won't get it quite right, but he he suggests that some of what's going on with, with respect to the insurrection and the people who are fomenting violence and and are you know very disenfranchised, it's not about they're not having material things. It's not about class resentment. It's a lot of bored people who want to be associated with some kind of crusade. How does that mesh with what you were saying a second ago? 
Um, I, I think I think uh, I would agree with that, but I would um, drain it of the pejoratives that Tom associates it with. I mean, that I, I think the human quest for meaning um, is the best part of who we are, um, and uh, and it represents something important and good about human beings that they can be sat they can have enough, they can have materially enough. Um, I mean, and and you know, I think we all feel that. Like the compulsive shopper, or the compul—that's why one of the, re- the reasons that people are sort of, you know, um, offended by the concentration of wealth. That there's a sense like, you know, really, you should be focusing on on higher things at, at a certain point, and a society should be focusing on higher things. So, so when people are, it's not that they're bored; it's they 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 um, they don't want another bridge from their politics. They want politics that delivers them something more spiritual. And um, the problem is that that becomes a very difficult po- politics to manage. Um, and so what, what happened on J- January 6th, I think most fundamentally, was a, a lot of people have a vision of what it means to be an American were shocked by the discovery they don't have uh, the clout to win that meaning at the ballot box. And what I would tell them as someone who's basically still a pretty conservative person is you, you can do some modifications. You know, it doesn't have to mean ex- that you can take your values and reapply them and enlarge them. And you will be surprised that there are coalitions out there waiting for you. Uh, but you have to adjust. You have to adapt to the, to the constantly changing country, just as conservatives through history have always had to adapt to change. And change is the great fact of, and especially with a dynamic, progressive market economy like this one, it's just, it's part of, it's part of what makes America great. It's dynamism. So, um, so you have to adapt constantly, but you can also preserve constantly, but uh, that there people become not conservative, but reactionary. So no, I want things to stay exactly the same and not only the same as they were, but the same as uh, the same way that I falsely remember them. I want a past that never was uh, a romanticized past, uh, the past that I, that I thought was true back in 1957 when I was a child. And that's not how the adults saw it, but that's how I thought it was. And that's what I want back. Um, you know, I, 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 um, I want it to be always Christmas like in the Christmas movies, not Christmas as it actually was. In but can we, we can judge that, right? You said a minute ago, this Tom Nichols idea about people wanting to be engaged or associated with a crusade, you want it to drain it of the pejorative, but it kind of depends on what the crusade is. If you decided in the fifties that meaning for you was keeping black people down and so the crusade I want to enter upon is, uh, is through the Ku Klux Klan. And, and I, in good faith, you know, there's this, this, this interesting debate about what good faith means. It doesn't get you off the hook if you believe something in good faith. If you believe in good faith, meaning it's a sincerely held view, which you and I find abhorrent and disgusting and terrible. But if you believed in the 1950s that black people were inferior to white people and shouldn't be in school with your kids and you embarked upon a crusade, even though it's not out of boredom, we can judge, right? No, what, what I meant by draining the, the negative was I just I, I wondering the, the, the idea that it's that it's somehow better if your politics is about material things than if it is about psychic things. I mean, and I would say as someone who's very interested in problems of political management, I think it's easier. Uh, I mean, it was obviously easier to do politics when politics was about material things. That's that that's the the. Um, the question that people will unfairly ask of modern presidents, why can't you do what Lyndon Johnson did and rally rally a, a vote in the Senate by promising somebody a bridge? And the answer is, well, because the bridges aren't as important today when we have so many as they were when we had fewer. Well, they're crumbling. Um, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> right. 
We need to, we need to still, replace the, those bridges, David. Yeah, but like any one bridge, like the idea that you're going to get a senator's vote with the promise of a project in a way that in 19, in a much poorer country you once could. Um, so that makes politic, that makes political management more, more difficult, more difficult. So when I, I, un- I just think we need to understand that this may be something we're just fated to encounter. And that so to say, well, people are bored um, and that, you know, that I think everyone who's in, like, one, one of the things that is a problem on the Democratic side uh, is, you know, a, a lot of the people who are sending 200 and $250 checks to Democratic candidates are doing so on behalf of impossible causes and often driving their party in impossible directions. And, and they're doing it because they don't, at some level, they don't care about um, the prospects for them. They don't care about, and they kind of disrespect the kinds of concerns that a Chuck Schumer would have or a Joe Biden would have. And they are, they're more excited by, you know, visions of, of a better world. And as I say, it makes politics more difficult. It may just be something about the level of development American society has reached. You know, you're talking about the politics of giving people concrete things. Here's an example that I think falls into that category that's been in the news recently, and that is the capping of prices of insulin, which would seem to me uh, that there are, there are Democrats and independents and Republicans who can't afford certain medications and, and may, maybe can't afford insulin. And I wouldn't think that to be such a divisive, you know, non-bipartisan issue or, or partisan issue. What am I missing about that? Well, I mean, as as a matter of policy, um, what what you call capping prices means um, paying a subsidy because the the price isn't capped; it's the, the the price is capped to the ultimate consumer. But someone else is is stepping up to write a check for the difference between the market price and the price paid by the consumer. And that's absolutely the kind of thing that that discussions are like. You know, uh, so if Bill Gates gets diabetes and he goes and buys insulin, he pays the same price. And why why would you subsidize it that way? Why are you delivering the subsidy, you know, for certain purchases and not others? It's it's like the argument over um, uh, get um, lightening the, the the load of college debt. Why is that one form of debt deserving of a subsidy rather than other forms of debt? So those are those are you know important public policy conversations to have. I, I thought you were going in a slightly different question with this, which is I, th- I think that the people proposing this are going to be surprised at how little benefit, political benefit, um the in the people who want to camp insulin get from their proposal. In, and they would that um, that I think that there is a part of the democratic world that keeps remembering things as they were in 1965, when in a poor country you could deliver Medicare and it would change the it would change the political framework of the country, and that happens less now because um, politics is is much more about non-material things than it used to be. And so, tell me again: is that a good thing, a bad thing, or it can be both? Um, it's just a thing. <laughs> it's just it's just a thing. non-normative, David. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think you sometimes have to have, have to say that sometimes your society changes in ways that create new kinds of problems for political managers, um, and 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 you just have to adjust your thoughts. But what, where you get into trouble is, I mean, this is another way of being that a flip side of the the Fox News message. I want it always to be Christmas as Christmas appeared to a seven year old in 1957. Um, to say, I want politics always to be the way I think it was when Lyndon Johnson was swaying votes by promising bridges and high schools and job projects in the Senate in the 1960s. And, you know, um, that keeping up with your society as it is, I and mean, this has been a theme of, of my writing for a long time, um, which is to be a patriot means to loving your country as it is, not as you believe it used to be. 
Um, and so we have to accept the world. <laughs> you have to accept the world as it is. You have no choice <laughs> whether you like it or not. <laughs> it's just, it's a big universe and you have to, you have to, and your politics have to face it. Um, and, yeah. and, uh, that's why politics is so hard. And that's why I have so much respect for politicians because it is such a, a challenging thing to do. And as the country gets bigger and, and more variegated all the time, it get, the job becomes ever harder. That's an interesting concept that you must love your country the way it is rather than the way it used to be. And I know, I know you probably don't quite mean this, but it just made me think in various ways, conservatives in particular, Republicans in particular, are trying to take us back to some of those good old days, whether we're talking about abortion or, you know, some people more on the fringe talking about, a, a, you know, a, a, um, a taking away of the, of the wall between church and state, although that's always been a part of our charter since the beginning. What do you make of folks who, who love the country the way it used to be and also in terms of immigration and the racial makeup of the country. Yeah. Would you agree that there are people who want to take us back to the place that they used to love? As I, I, the, thing, the theme I keep stressing here is it isn't the way it used to be. It's the way they believe it used to be. Because if they saw the way it used to be, they wouldn't like it. So, um, you know, there are people who complain about uh, there's a soap opera or historical soap opera called Bridgerton and, and they've done race blind casting. And, uh, so many of the people in what is supposed to be Regency England are black. And, uh, and this is obviously not the way it was. And, and I've heard people complain about it, but it's also true that all the characters have teeth and that's also not the way it was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and so like, if you actually, if, if you had to go back to America in 57, none of the people who think they want it, would like it, um, especially if you're given like a random position in the class hierarchy. I mean, because right. it- But they might uh, like certain things about it. If you're a racist, if you're a racist, you might like some things about it. But the things you like about it are connected to the things to the that you thing. didn't like about it. And so- you, Bad dentistry. So Yeah, so you, you fix the dentistry and you're also fixing a lot of other things at the same time. I mean, for example, one of the things you might say is that, you know, um, I'd like to have the, the size of government that we had in the 1950s, but or no, the 1940s now, because it happened a little later, but not, not the bad teeth. Well, the most important thing that changed the teeth was fluoride in the water. That, that was more important than any of the things you do at the dentist you see two or three times a year. It was the fluoride in the water that changed the teeth. Um, and, and that was an incredibly, you know, if you're complaining about the vaccine, <laughs> I mean, the people who complained about the vaccine once literally did complain about fluoride in the water. But the fluoride in the water is what makes teeth strong. So I, I mentioned this earlier that I would ask you, is Trump, forget about Trump himself personally, but Trumpism, whatever that is, and feel free to define it or not, is Trumpism ascendant? or waning, or sort of even keel? You know, I think when you think about these kinds of questions, you, you need to always keep in mind that these are choices. We're not observers here. We are choosers. So Trumpism could be ascendant. However, minute, again, we, we'll just, we can argue about what exactly it is. But with that thing, and we think we can, we have a sense of what we mean. That thing could be ascendant if you agree if you don't do all you can to stop it, or could be defeated if you um, combine with like-minded people of goodwill and summon your energies. It's up to you, and and it's not. But so, this is this is your this is the David from way of avoiding prediction. It is my but it, but, uh, it is my way of avoiding <laughs> prediction. But I avoid prediction yeah. not just because I'm afraid of being wrong, because I've been wrong plenty, and I'm not afraid of it. Um, because it's because you but, don't know. We don't know. But no. But I, I, what I my my anti I have an anti prediction stance that comes from I don't. 
it, 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 predictions treat the future as a thing that exists, as a thing about which statements can be made. And there are probabilities, uh, but you can, it's, it's shapeable. It's shapeable. I, I ended one of um, uh, my books about Trump by reminding people of the story uh, for, of the Christmas Carol, um, uh, Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol, with the last ghost, the ghost of Christmas yet to be appears before Ebenezer Scrooge. And Scrooge asks the question, are you a vision of what will be or what may be? And, and the ghost silently does not answer the question. But the, the story reveals it was just a vision of what could be. And you could make other choices and have another future. Okay. I will accept that for now. <laughs> I mentioned a couple of people earlier, and, and, I, and I struggle with this myself. You know, you, you have these members of Congress who I think are basically know nothing, and they have a lot of terrible qualities, and they espouse terrible things. For example, Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene. And there are people who say, well, they should be ignored. And there are other people who say, well, when they say those crazy things, they should be called out. My first question is, do you have a view on one or the other? And then second, have they not already won? I think if you went and asked 100 progressives to name Republican members of Congress, the first names that they would come up with would be those two, even though they have very few accomplishments to their name, you know, good or bad, you know, even if you're a progressive. What do you make of that debate? Um, the question of, of how you react to things is very much a prudential matter. I mean, that you... Um, there are people who say provocative things as a way to make themselves famous. They're not famous now. Yes, and They're not famous now. <laughs> they say a provocative thing and they get more famous. Um, and that, that's, you know, uh, one of the reasons that the Tucker Carlson show is the way it is, um, is that Fox News, like all cable broadcasting, faces a, a crisis. Cable, cable is a, an industry of the past and it faces a very uncertain future. And so one of the, the people who may write that show think, how do we make clips that will be shared on social media? Um, because we can't count on people who um, have working, you know, who are, uh, we can't count on people to watch our show on cable anymore the way you could 10, 15, 20 years ago. But we, if we can get them to share it, uh, we can energize them. We, we create demand for our product, even if it's a, if it's a negative kind of demand. Um, so you have to be, on the other hand, uh, when the man who is the man who was president of the United States says something outrageous. And people say, why are you, what, I'll get a, like you with your, you know, Twitter feed. Why are you platforming? I say, he's the president of the United States. He's important whether, whether I tweet him or not. He, he's a man who can, he can end organized human life on this planet on 11 minutes notice. Uh, and so, so that's the president. So, but what about somebody who was on the way to becoming famous, like Marjorie Taylor Greene? And, and to me, it only works, you know, this idea that you, you don't amplify something only works if everyone is on board with that. And that's just not going to be because of human nature, right? Yeah. Look, the, the, um, to my mind, the question is, is, is what, it's the, the way the internal incentives of Congress have changed, that a leader, the leaders can't squelch backbenchers in the way they, they once could. Um, you know, famously, Sam Rayburn, who was Speaker of the House in the, in the 50s, wouldn't even talk to first-term members of the House because he said, the American people will elect anybody to anything once. Get reelected, then we talk. Uh, but that was at a time when the leaders of the party controlled the finances. Um, when when the, that one-term member, if the one-term member displeased Sam Rayburn, Sam Rayburn could cut that person off committees, could deny them money, could basically force them out of office. Um, that's that's not so tr so true now. And so Kevin McCarthy has many fewer tools uh, 
Um, he may discover he has fewer tools even against Liz Cheney, by the way. It's not impossible that Liz Cheney gets reelected, and then, then what does he do? Uh, so co- Congress is, is, is shifting in ways that um, create incentives for people to behave the way Marjorie Taylor Greene and others have done, or Alexandria or Ocasio-Cortez. You know, um, you know she, uh, when she first came into the House, tried to have a kind of detente with Nancy Pelosi and in fact changed her behaviors in way in some ways she got rid of a chief of staff who was very offensive to other Democrats and who had some financial scandals and and she looked like she was choosing a future as a member of the house but I, I think you can see a lot of people are saying I don't want to rise to the ranks of the house I want to be an internet celebrity and that's its own form of power and so that's that's going to be one of the um, one of the ways that politics is going to be different is that you that social media allows people to create this new kind of information power that, that political societies, political leaders have to deal with. So I'm going to ask you to make a different prediction because maybe this is an easier one to make, but you can also sidestep it if you want. All indications, do you agree, are that, and people don't like it when I say this, all indications are that the House is going to change hands. You agree? Yeah, probably. Yeah, I do agree with that. I think, and I think that's that's about. So that must a, be. You must be so certain of that that you're willing to make a. Yeah, I think that's. You're not saying. Well, we can make a choice, no, no, Preet. No, you know, no, we I can think, decide I think, that the Democrats we, remain we, in power. Look, those kinds of things. There, we can talk about probabilities. I think you can always predict probabilities. Yeah. So, um, it's not. Imp, you know, it's there. You you can imagine ways that the Democrats don't lose the House. Uh, you 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 can certainly imagine ways that the Democrats don't lose the Senate. Uh, but. The probability is they will lose the House, and the prob- a lower probability, but still a probability, is they lose the Senate, too. So they lose the House, and I've talked a little bit about what that might look like in 2023, but I'm interested in hearing from you. What is that going to look like? How many degrees of crazy is that going to be? Or if Kevin McCarthy is the speaker, will he try to make a little less crazy than I have predicted? Kevin McCarthy is going to be a weak speaker. Um, and so he will. He may try, but he will not succeed. Um, and that is a prediction. And um, that there's a real pattern in American midterm elections. Election. It, it, there are aberrations like 2018, where um, the party that gains the House is on its way to gaining the presidency. But much more common are in recent times are elections like 1994 and 2010, uh, where uh, the party that wins the majority in the House takes it as a license to do every crazy thing it can think of and actually sets the table for then its defeat in front of the bigger electorate that come out in presidential years. Um, and so, you know, uh, I think one, uh, one of the questions that if you're a Republican presidential candidate, you have to worry about is your best hope is that Republicans just barely fall short in twenty. 2022, and that the party then gets so revved up and upset uh, that they come out for you in 2024, because the danger that they face is your 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 team wins in 2022, and then proceeds to do one crazy thing after another, and meanwhile it, uh, the uh, administration has the power to do some course corrections now that it doesn't have to worry about so much about its members in the House and Senate, especially in the House. It can do some course correction. Biden will be able to do in 23 some very visible law and order things um, to reaffirm that, uh, you know, I don't want to abolish police. I know. I think, of course, criminals belong in prison, obviously. Um, Biden will be, uh, I think the, the price of gas will sub- subside. You know, that um, the pre- that, that 
I think people over hugely overestimate the power of presidents over things like gas and food prices, food and fuel prices, which are driven very much by economic cycles. I mean, gas, even before Ukraine, gas prices, gasoline prices were going up because prices had been low. Therefore, people didn't make the investments in 2017 and 28 to generate the supply that you would burn in 21, 22, and 23. Prices have been higher, and therefore, people do make the investments, and they take to those investments take two or three years to come to market. And so the seeds of the next era of high prices are always in the last era of low prices and vice versa. Last question. You were a senior advisor to Rudy Giuliani during his presidential campaign in 2008. Yeah. There are many questions I could ask, but but the primary question I want to ask you, and feel feel and feel free to embellish and and, and elaborate, is the Rudy Giuliani of two thousand eight the same guy we see now, or is he a different guy? He was on the path to being this guy. It was a very heartbreaking experience because, um, you know, I I had I had lived in New York in the nineties. I knew the Rudy Giuliani of the nineteen nineties. Not always a lovable person, um, but someone with. Uh, a sense of right, um, someone who was determined to do what it took to to make life better for the people around him, and someone who worked who worked for others, and and something went awry, and it accelerated. And I, I saw that actually even 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 during the campaign. That um, one of the reasons that campaign went so badly was there was something there was something already amiss, something that was already not committed. Um, and I think voters, even Republican voters, sense that that he he was about he was about different different things, um, and uh, it you know it's, it's, it's not the most impressive line in my resume, um, but I, I I worked I worked on I, I kept trying to to the limit of my very small influence there to say you need to talk about. Uh, the, the the needs of the middle class people that you championed when you were mayor of New York. Yeah, look, I mean, it's interesting when people talk about Rudy Giuliani. I did not know him as well as you, but I knew him some, and he was very nice to me when I became the U.S. Attorney. And they'll say, "See, he, he we knew him all along. He was always this way. He was always self obsessed. He was always, uh, you know, ambitious in a particular way. He always wanted to be relevant." My view is, and I ask this of people who know him better than I do. Yeah, he, he may have had some bad qualities. You point them out. He was very full of himself and very arrogant and had a certain conceit, you know, throughout his career, even when he was a young U.S. attorney himself. But this Rudy Giuliani is quite different. And, um, you know, I don't know what exactly happened, uh, but in, in some ways it's sad to see. And not everyone feels sad for him, but, you know, but he was a, you know, by many accounts, a good and strong leader of the office that I led many years later. and. For him now to have associated himself with people and with conduct that's just crazy town yeah. and to have his law license suspended in two jurisdictions, I think is, among other things, quite sad. It, it happened to a lot of people in the Trump orbit. Um, and and this is, I mean, when people say, oh, now you see, I don't think, I think people, character characters have a lot of elements to them and a lot of potentiality to unfold in ways that are good and bad. I mean, Mike Flynn, did really good work in Iraq for the United States. Um, and then things went wrong. I mean, I, he was then appointed head of the Defense Intelligence Agency, which was a job that was too big for him. He failed at it. He became embittered. And then he spiraled off into this path that he's now on. But 
he could you can imagine that if he had not been given the job at DIA, if he'd been given another job, he could have led an honorable military career into a quiet retirement. Um, uh, you know, teaching, training, um, and looking back on real service to the country and uh, and a life a life to be proud of, and real accomplishments in Iraq, where he he was he did a lot to to break insurgencies because he was he was very good at sort of micro police work, and I think. You know, that's just, it's a caution for all of us, you know, that there, it, I think if we examine honestly our own character, we see potential in ourselves for, for good or for bad, depending on our environment. And, and so much of um, the lesson of studying these kinds of conspicuous characters is to understand, you know, I, I, I need to, const- I need to focus on making sure that I'm in situations that bring out my best self and that I consciously think about what is, you know, my best self and what is my worst self. Um, and that I avoid the path of these um that consume people who had big potential in themselves. David Frum, you've been very generous with your time. Thanks for joining us on the show again. It was really great. It's always a pleasure. Thank you. My conversation with David Frum continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. To try out the membership for just $1 for a month, head to cafe.com slash insider. As you know, it's not uncommon for me to end the show by talking about the passing of someone important to me or important to the public. This week, I want to mention the demise of a restaurant. It's in Lower Manhattan, nestled in between the SDNY and the DA's office amid the courthouses and alongside Chinatown. It's called Forlini's, and it's been there for 79 years. News broke recently that after all this time, it's shutting its doors. Forlini's, if you haven't been there, and I'm guessing most of you have not, had big booths and white tablecloths. It served family-style Italian-American classics and was one of Manhattan's last remaining red sauce spots. It was a longtime favorite of judges, defense lawyers, prosecutors, and defendants, and also reporters, bail bondsmen, court officers, and really anyone who worked in the courtroom ecosystem. One of the special things about the restaurant is that the booths were adorned with plaques bearing the names of famous patrons. One inscription read, Judge Leslie Crocker Snyder founded First Sex Crimes Prosecution Bureau in U.S., 25 years patron. And then another one, Robert M. Morgenthau, the legendary Manhattan district attorney who lived to the age of 99, who used to eat at Forlini's twice a week and was referred to by the staff as the boss. Now, in my view... Morgenthau was a giant, but the jury is still out on whether anyone can be called the boss besides Bruce. In recent years, Forlini's got attention because it began catering to a hipper set, you might call it a hip replacement, that failed. In 2018, it played home to Vogue's pre-Met gala party, which was attended by celebrities and members of the downtown fashion set. The Forlini's that I knew was not exactly a hotspot for fashion designers. I have my own connection to the place, and many great memories. First of all, when I was a line assistant, it was a common place for people to have their farewell lunches, and people would give toasts and tell stories about a departing assistant U.S. attorney from the Southern District of New York. When I became U.S. attorney in 2009, I met for the first time that legendary Manhattan district attorney when he was still in office, Robert Morgenthau. And I remember sitting down in the booth and looking over to the side on the wall and seeing the plaque, which basically designated that booth Robert Morgenthau's, and I felt, I will say, a little bit intimidated. And I, I joked, I think, at the lunch 
that maybe one day in the future, if I'm lucky, there might be a booth with a post-it saying Preet Bharara on it. And when it came time for me to pick a place and celebrate what was both my birthday and my swearing in as the United States Attorney for the Southern District of New York, I chose Forlini's to hang out with my family and close friends from the office. Anyway, it was a special place for a lot of reasons and for a lot of people. Forlini's was family-run for all its 79 years in business, and its most recent owners were Joe Forlini and his cousin Derek. The Forlinis reportedly sold the building for an undisclosed amount. Derek Forlini told the Times in 2018, quote, My father always used to say, We came from Italy with nothing, and now judges know me by name. End quote. Not a bad American story. I'll miss Forlini's. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, David Frum. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to letters at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The technical director is David Tatashore. The senior producers are Adam Waller and Matthew Billy. And the CAFE team is David Kurlander, Sam Ozer-Staten, Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Sean Walsh, and Namita Shah. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.